This morning, we're continuing our look at the book of Ephesians, and uh, we got to the halfway point last Sunday, and I, I think I mentioned this several times along the way here, but the book of Ephesians, when you look at it, we have it carved up into six chapters, and if you want to kind of summarize the book in your mind, one of the things that you could say, all right, well, first of all, you know, the theme of the book is the idea of God's eternal purpose for the church. So that's the theme of the book, God's eternal purpose for His church. And you can see that all throughout the book. The first three chapters that we just finished up last time, give us a behind-the-scenes picture of what's going on, some of the theological realities, some of the things that the Lord's orchestrating behind the scenes so that we get to enjoy, right in front of our face, the things that we get to enjoy as a, a spiritual blessing. The second half of the book, which we're starting today, shows us how we're supposed to live in response to that. And so it's a very practical and very interesting way that the book is separated. You see the background, you see what the Lord has done for us, and then we're being shown, what am I supposed to do with this? So the next group of weeks, as we work through chapters 4 and 5 and 6, we're going to see a lot of practical information that has a pretty healthy impact on the church when it's actually lived out, pretty healthy impact on our individual lives as it's lived out. And the portion of Scripture we're looking at today, it's not a very long portion that we're going we're gonna to carve up and, and, and take a look at. We're just going to look at the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, and what you're going to see in this brief portion of Scripture is what it looks like to cultivate the ideal culture in the church. So I just want you to have that in the back of your mind as we look at some of the, the challenges that we're given in this passage of Scripture. What does it look like to cultivate the ideal culture in the church? Well, it's described for us here in this portion of Scripture, starting with verse 1 of Ephesians 4. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to start off our week looking at your word together and thinking about the things that you've revealed to us in it. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture that really gives us a picture of what the ideal culture of the church should look like. We pray, Lord, that we would understand these things and that we would grow in our walk with you as a result, that these would be the type of challenges that we would read and that we would internalize as your spirit makes these things clear to our minds and, and clear to our hearts, and that we would live these things out in relationship with one another, that these would be the type of things that we would say, all right, here's the blueprint for how I'm supposed to uh, interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ and how the church is to operate. So, Lord, thank you so much for giving us this portion of your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we look at these things, that you'd call these things back to our memory and back to our attention frequently, and we thank you for all your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in college, I, I had a really cool opportunity to work at two summer camps, two Christian summer camps. It was 
just a wonderful experience to be able to do what I was able to do in those contexts or the opportunities that I was given. I worked there. My sisters worked there. I enjoy working at, at, at both places. And those experiences taught me, amazingly, a lot about life. I feel like I learned a lot about leadership. I feel like I learned a lot about hospitality and the importance of hospitality. Different lessons that I can see have benefited me quite regularly throughout the course of my life. And I have to say, if, if you ever want really good preparation for parenthood, become a summer camp counselor and do it for, uh, for, for several years. And having worked in that context for several years, I remember by the time the Lord blessed my wife and I with kids, there are certain things that, because that, she had been a, a camp counselor as well, there are certain things that the two of us were able to say, oh yeah, we've seen this before. Remember this kid that used to do that? Huh, now we have one of our own. That's great. Now, one of the camps, uh, well, I, it's funny, because in both of the camps that I worked at, I, I feel like I, I gleaned some really important lessons from the people that were in charge. At one of the camps, I really learned a lot of leadership lessons. There were a lot of leadership lessons that were really poured into me. And at the other camp that I worked at, uh, the director and his wife had a real gift for hospitality. And they were just lavish in their hospitality. They knew that we as their staff, living in cabins all summer long with groups of campers, that that might start to get old because you, you really lack creature comforts when you're living in those cabins. Uh, they had running water, but there's no other real amenity in, in those cabins. So there's not a couch to sit down on. There's not, you know, uh, easy temperature control, things of that nature. And so what that, that director and his wife decided to do was that they decided to take a room in their house. So they had a house right there at the front of the camp property, and they took a room inside their house, and they turned that room into a staff lounge. And then they gave the staff permission to come and go as we pleased. And they set up a TV for us. They had like all sorts of things. If we wanted refreshments, if we wanted anything, they basically said, treat our house like your house. You're, wel you're welcome to come and go as you please. And, and this area here we're setting aside for you guys. And I remember thinking, this is immensely helpful because sometimes you have an hour break and you're thinking, where am I going to go on this hour break? I live in a cabin with all my campers. And if I go back to my cabin to rest, like they might be there too. And so that's not really going to work out. And so it was a respite where you could just retreat for an hour and either watch something on TV or fall asleep or read a book or whatever you wanted to do. Showing hospitality and, and really creating a loving culture, no matter what context we happen to do it in, that matters more than I think sometimes we realize it matters. And, it, you know, it's the type of thing, again, can help us gain rest, it, it can help us calm our thinking, it can help us recover from our stresses, it can help us become ready to approach a new uh, week or a new season. And that's one of the ways I have to give credit to my home church for um, really ministering to me as a child. They also understood the concept of showing generous hospitality as a local church. And I remember thinking, there was a, a, a real season during my growing up experience where there were a lot of stresses and things like that happening in my daily life, but I always loved the fact that each week started off with me gathering together with my brothers and sisters in Christ as a church family, putting all those things aside, coming together in a context where people showed each other genuine love and genuine hospitality, and we just lifted up our voices in praise to the Lord. We sat under the teaching of God's Word. It was a moment to pause from everything else that was going on in life and kind of hit that reset button and then begin a new week fresh. 
The culture we facilitate in the local church matters. You see Paul demonstrating that in the portion of Scripture we just read, and we'll reread portions of this again. We'll work our way through it. But the culture that we, that we cultivate in a local church, it matters. It could either point people to Jesus, or it could actually be something that discourages people from, from following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in a, 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 a local church context that almost made you feel worse that you showed up than better that you showed up. And uh, I've seen a few contexts like that, certain instances that I've, I've been in that I, I've thought to myself, I think, how does this even exist? This is like a miserable experience that's going on here. So when you look at the ideal culture that the Apostle Paul demonstrates here in this portion of Scripture, I want us to be asking, what does that look like? And how can we, not just from a theory standpoint, but how can we, in very practical ways, how can we actually live these things out? And I want to reread these verses a section at a time as we look at some of the main concepts that Paul brings up here. But I think when he's talking about this idea of cultivating the ideal culture in the local church, I think one of the things that he's, he, he stresses here, when, and you can see it just directly in his words, is that it begins by paying attention to your own walk. It begins by paying attention to your own walk. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let me pause there for just a second. Several years ago, I I was walking with a friend of mine who is another pastor. He's about 20 years older than me. And uh, not only is is he a pastor, but he's also a real storyteller. So do you have anyone in your life that's like that, that they always have a story, they've always got something to share, they've always got something interesting to convey, and you find yourself gripped by what they're saying. Well, he's that kind of guy. He's about 20 years older than me, always has an interesting story to share. And so as we were walking, he was talking. But as he was talking, he stopped paying attention to his footing. And the sidewalk we were on was a little bit skinnier than a normal width sidewalk. And the dirt on the edges of that sidewalk didn't really come up to meet the sidewalk. There was actually kind of a steep step off on the edge of it. And as he was talking, he stopped paying attention to his walking, and he stepped off one of those edges. And I watched him, and I was amazed by this because he actually did not get hurt, but he very easily could have. He stumbled. It looked to me like I thought I was watching him break an ankle right in front of me. And somehow the Lord made him flexible enough that he was able to just kind of contort himself and not fall all the way to the ground and regain his balance. And then he looked down at the, at the sidewalk and he said, that's a pretty steep edge. <laughs> and then he continued with his story. In Scripture, there are frequent challenges that we could see over and over again that encourage us to, to watch how we're walking. That's a phrase that's not uncommon when you look at Scripture. It ta- talks about this idea of your walk and my walk. We're encouraged to watch how we're walking. And that's basically another way to encourage us to keep an eye on how we're living our lives. So when you see that in Scripture, when you see Paul saying that even here in verse 1, it's the idea of keep an eye on how you're living your life. Watch how you're walking. Watch your walk. We'll either be devoted to Jesus and we'll be walking on the narrow path that leads to life, or we'll take our eyes off Him and we'll begin drifting right down that wide path of this world that leads to destruction. And so the Apostle Paul was challenging us to watch our walk. And as he was writing this letter to the church, he wanted them to understand how the church operates when it's healthy. And that starts with the individual members of the church paying close attention to their own walk. 
I think in life it could be a lot easier to pay attention to the errors or the missteps of other people while overlooking areas of concern in our own life. I know that for me, it's much easier to notice the fault of another person than it is to observe my own faults or the errors of another person or the weaknesses of another person. It hurts a little bit emotionally to admit our own struggles, our own difficulties. But here Paul's encouraging us to, you know, don't overlook your own life. Keep an eye on your walk. Keep an eye on your life. As, be- as believers in Christ, we're being called to walk in a manner, the way he says it here, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So that's the idea that God himself has looked at you and has called you unto himself and has given you his name. So if you're to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, it's the idea, okay, it's like God has called me unto himself. He's called me his child. He's given me his name. If I represent him, I should walk in a particular way. My life should reflect that in, in, in a particular way. And so Paul's saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, when you look at, at Paul's life, and as he's giving this challenge to the church, Paul was someone who was very much a credible witness when it came to this. He was somebody worth listening to. He wasn't somebody saying this, but not actually practicing this. And he reminds his readers in this passage, when he's giving them this admonition, he reminds them that at the time he's giving them this challenge or this admonition, that he is a prisoner. Now, I'm sure the Roman government would have called Paul their, their prisoner. You know, they would have said, hey, he's our prisoner. We've got him under house arrest in Rome. He's our prisoner. But that's not how he described his imprisonment when you look at what he says here in this passage. Paul called himself here what? What does he say? Calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. Not a prisoner for Rome, a prisoner for the Lord. So for Christ's glory and in service to Christ's bride, which is the church, Paul was willing to be unjustly imprisoned because of his willingness to preach the gospel. That's what was going on behind the scenes. That's why he was in the context that he was in. He was walking the walk. He was living out his faith, even when it was being tested, even when there were consequences for doing so. And when I think about the things that Paul was enduring, when I think about what his daily life must have been like in the midst of that, and how much I hate being cooped up, and I think, boy, he was willing to endure a lot for the church. I think to myself, and I want to say this so that all of us maybe will kind of wrestle with this, but I ask myself the question, all right, John, are you willing to clearly and openly live out your faith, even in the midst of a hostile environment, even if it results in suffering or discomfort or even imprisonment. Now, I hope that's never tested in, in a, any major way, but if it is, you know, I, I ask myself that question, I think, all right, many people would not be willing to do that. Paul was willing to do that, and so here he's saying, all right, watch how you're walking. And then he demonstrates the fact that he was willing to walk the walk by the fact that he says here, look, I'm a, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. It's like, yeah, no, he literally was imprisoned because he walked the walk. And I think, is my faith at that level that I would walk the walk even in the face of that kind of consequence? I don't know if you pay attention to the news. Sometimes I, I don't think I should, you know, and I've said that from time to time. I think, you know, anytime you're having a good day and you want to ruin it, just watch the news or read the news. You know, it's like, today's going so well. Let me check the news. Oh, that fixed it. It's, it's not going well anymore. So the, the other day, though, I saw something that really convicted me. 
And I won't give all the details of this because sometimes if you, if you get too deep into the news, it could start sounding political. But one of the things that, that uh, I happened to notice was, you know, here, here you and I are gathered face-to-face for worship, right? I'm not taking that for granted. I, I'm assuming you don't take that for granted either. And you also are probably well aware that there are many believers throughout this world who right now are not allowed to do this, right? There are many believers who right now get in big trouble if they do things like this. And you may have seen this the other day, uh, a pastor that just felt so convicted that his church needed to be able to assemble. And he also, you know, he wanted to be able to baptize his teenage daughter. And he assembled his church and uh, carried through with the baptism and decided, you know, I don't know what kind of consequences I'm going to deal with for this, but I'm still doing it because that's what I'm supposed to do as a pastor. And so in his particular country, he was arrested. I saw the footage the other day. I saw the guy get arrested. I saw another pastor get arrested for one reason, what we're doing right now. So like what you and I are doing right now can get you arrested in some places in this world. So you know what some believers are doing right now in certain places in the world? Not doing what we're doing right now. And, and, you know, and I look at that and I think to myself, am I willing to walk the walk even when there's a price like that to be paid? Paul was. I'd like to tell you that I am. I think that I am, but you know how you really know when it gets tested? That's when you know. He was tested, and he passed the test, and here's, here's the thing. You and I are going to get tested all throughout the course of our life, and it might not be in dramatic ways that make the news. Usually, it's like the little things in a little conversation, a little interaction all along the way. It's not always something so dramatic that what happened to Paul or what happened to that pastor that I saw the other day would happen to you. It's usually smaller things. And it's like, all right, Lord, when I'm tested, will I still walk the walk? Am I paying attention to my, my own walk? Do I think it's only the big things that matter or do the little things matter all along the way? And so Paul was encouraging the church to pay close attention to their walk with Christ. A healthy church is made up of Christians who are willing to walk the walk. And then he goes on a little bit further. When he gets into verse 2, It's like, okay, this began with you. Now, let's extend it outward. Show your church family that you value them. Show them that you value them. So what does that look like for a believer to show their church family that their church family is also valued? So the way he describes it in verse 2 is like this. He's saying, when we interact with one another, how, how are we supposed to do it? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience... Bearing with one another in love. It's a short statement, but it's a powerful statement if we actually practice it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I noticed that this past week went by really, really quickly for me. It seems like five minutes ago we were all right here in this spot, and uh, I'm sometimes amazed at how quickly a week goes by. And when when I assess this, I even shared this online, I was thinking through, I was like, why does this week feel like it's gone by so quickly? And I'll tell you why this past week felt like it went by so quickly. It was a week filled with interesting conversations. It was a week filled with interesting conversations with all kinds of people. I spoke with new friends. I spoke with old friends. I spoke with family. I spoke with people that I admired. And in the midst of those conversations, there was actually a little bit of a theme that I started to notice with some of these conversations that were taking place. And there were several moments that I could point to when the people that I was speaking to actually made an intentional effort to demonstrate that they valued me. 
that they valued either something I said, or they valued the time that I was giving them, or something like that. And typically the way they did that was maybe by just offering an encouraging word. And, and you know, it's not, it wasn't any more elaborate than that. But isn't that one of the ways that we could demonstrate that we value one another? Sometimes just an encouraging word, sometimes just something simple, doesn't have to be anything complicated. Now, there, admittedly, when you look at how most people operate in this world, or many people operate in this world, there are many people in this world who basically operate like they care much more about themselves than they care about anyone else, anyone in their life, anyone that they, that they say they respect, anything like that. They tend to care more about themselves than anyone else in their life, and they probably don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what they can offer somebody else that might be a blessing or might be a word of encouragement. But now let's take this, this concept into the church. When it comes to the church, that should never be the case. When it comes to the church, the church is made up of all kinds of people. And you have the Apostle Paul encouraging us here. When you look at what he says in, the, in, in these words, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Church is made up of all kinds of people. We have the opportunity to bear with one another in love. We have the opportunity to encourage and build one another up in humility. So it's interesting when you look at the church, when you look at whom Christ has called unto himself, you've got every personality type. So even in this room, I bet you we've got every major personality type, wouldn't you think? Some of us are more reserved. Some of us are more outspoken. Some of us like to serve behind the scenes. Some of us prefer to serve in front of the scene. Uh, some of us feel like we're gifted with patience and gifted with mercy. And some of us, myself included, know that we're not gifted in those areas. So we try and hang out with people who are gifted in those areas. So it will rub off on us and we'll learn how it's actually done. And when you look at how the Lord's created his church, how he's fashioned his church, every personality type, every personal sensitivity, it's represented in the church. And God has constructed his church this way on purpose to teach us patience. He's also doing this to create a context in which none of us can look at one another and say, hey, because you have this weakness or because I have this weakness, I don't need you. In fact, Scripture is very clear in saying that one believer can never look at another believer and say, I don't need you, because the truth is, we need each other, right? We need each other. And we were designed this way and, and called to operate this way on purpose so that we would, in humility, recognize just how much we need one another. We're gifted intentionally in different ways. And we're called to bear with one another in love because we're, we're, we're shaped a little bit differently, each of us, showing love and showing forbearance toward those who are different from us, that's not something that's always easy to do. I think if it was easy to do, we wouldn't have Scripture telling us to do it, because we'd already be doing it. Those words wouldn't have been wasted, right? We'd already be, do be doing it. It wouldn't be something that needed to be said. But when you think about why we're called to do this, or what our deeper motivation to be doing this should be, it's really coming back to the fact that that's exactly what Christ has done for us. When you look at what Jesus has done for each of us, he's, he bears with us in love. There's none of us that could come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I've arrived, I'm perfect. You could focus on the other people now. We look at Christ and we realize, all right, Lord, I don't even, I don't even deserve to be able to enter into your presence, and yet you tell me that I can be here confidently. You tell me that you love me. You tell me that you're friend. You, de that my, you're, you tell me that you're my friend. You've demonstrated your love in so many ways, and you bear with me. 
How many times have you referred to yourself as a work in progress? And why do we tend to say that of ourselves? Because deep down there's a part of us that hopes that those that operate close to us will be patient with us. Hey, I'm a work in progress. Correct, you are. And so are the people that the Lord's called you to be patient with. They are also works in progress. Someday we will be perfected and glorified in the presence of the Lord. That day is coming. The people that you're being patient with right now, the people that you're bearing with in love right now, one day, if they know Jesus Christ, they will be perfected in His presence. But right now, we are a work in progress, right? We're, we're going through this process of sanctification, growing in holiness as the Holy Spirit does His work in and through us. So in the meantime, what does the Scripture say? All right, as we operate as a church family, do so with humility, do so with gentleness, do so with patience, bearing with one another in love. By the way, is this not now an opportunity, a great opportunity for us to practice that? You know what I've noticed, particularly over the the past year and a half? I'm friends with people who love Jesus just as much as I do, but they have different opinions about secondary issues. So what should I do? Should I say my opinions are the opinions? Of course. So the next point, no. (laughs) No. I appreciate serving in a church context that gets my sense of humor. This is a great time for that to be tested, right? And, it, and I have to tell you, like in my day-to-day life, it gets tested all the time. There are people that I love, people that love Jesus just as much as I do that have different opinions on different things. So what does it look like right now when it's tested to be the type of person who can bear with another person in love? With humility, with gentleness, It gets tested. So when it gets tested, say, thank you, Lord, for this test. Help me to show a little glimpse of your heart because you show this to me, so now help me to show it to somebody else. Not in a condescending way where deep down inside we're like, yeah, but I am right, right? That's not how it is. It says with humility. The idea of of focusing on the other person and their need and their story and, and their sensitivities honoring that to the best degree that we possibly can. Something else that's a development of this, when you look at what Paul says next when you get into verse 3, and you can see easily how it continues the same thought, he's basically encouraging us here not to let petty arguments cause division. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So a few minutes ago, I mentioned some conversations I had the opportunity to have this week. And uh, one of the the conversations I had this week was with um, two sisters who are musicians. And I I really enjoy their music. I think it's it's really um, just a, a blessing. It's something I like listening to. And so I asked them a particular question. I, I said, all right, uh, how did you develop such a deep interest in creating music and creating the kind of music that you're creating? And they explained to me that nearly everyone in their extended family and nearly everyone in their immediate family played an instrument. And just about every time their family would get together for a holiday or for a birthday or just a picnic or anything like that, they would typically bring their their instruments and they would get together. And at some point during the get-together, there would be singing. And anyone that played an instrument would get get the instrument. They'd sit around and anyone who didn't play an instrument would help sing. And and it was uh, an enjoyable thing. And I joked with them and I, I said... You know, um, that's nice that your family sings when you get together. When my family got together when we were growing up, we complained. 
And I said, but it's kind of like the same, right? You know, it's like, that's a form of singing, isn't it? Like when you're complaining, that's... And they said, maybe, not really, right? We've been united as one body by the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to make music together as a family and to lift up our praises with one voice. Do you ever think about how unique a church gathering is? When we gather together, what do we typically do? One of the major facets historically of when the church gathers together is we take some time and we do what? We sing, right? Could you imagine how weird that would be if in other contexts of your life you were also doing that? You get to work, and every day at work, you start off with three or four songs. It's like, I'm at work. It's so great. Everybody, all the men, all the women. It's like, now I'm going to my desk, you know? It would seem strange in other contexts, and yet here we gather together in worship, and what do we do as a church? We sing. Can I tell you, I remember a conversation I had with uh, uh, Josh and and Ruth uh, a few years ago. I remember noticing one Sunday prior to me uh, preaching, they were leading music that Sunday, and uh, I just found myself in those moments knowing that, all right, in just a few minutes you're going to be preaching the scriptures, but how nice it was to be able to pause and just sing together and listen to our church family. It was a Sunday when I was sitting toward the front. When you sit toward the front, that's when you get to hear all the voices a little bit better. And I was sitting toward the front and I was like, oh, wow, this sounds, this is so great. And just, it kind of took me out of thinking about anything. And I just, I was just focused on that and I was thinking about it. And, uh, and when I got up to preach, I felt like I was preaching with with like enthusiasm. And I I thanked them afterward. I said, thank you so much for leading us in worship because that put my mind and my heart in in the right spot to be able to preach the word today. There were things I needed to just not be thinking about and you helped me get to that spot. And when you look at how the Lord's invited us to operate, he's invited us to operate with one voice. And it's nice when we get to sing together because isn't that actually a picture of the kind of unity that you and I have with our brothers and sisters in Christ? For one moment each week, we're all singing the same thing. For one moment each week, we're just singing together the same words, all together in one spot, praising the same God, worshiping Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the kind of unity that the Lord invites the church to live in and to experience, and He empowers us to maintain that unity and to maintain that peace that He fostered among us in the first place. And so when you think about how easily petty arguments or selfish ambition can somehow worm its way into that from time to time, it's not really God's ideal for the church because we've been bound together to Him and to one another through His Spirit. How many arguments have you ever engaged in over the course of your life that were actually about something important? Do you ever ask yourself that question? I remember after Andrea and I got married, I noticed that during our first year of marriage, we dated for about three and a half years before we got married, and we had a lovely time dating. And then we got married, and I was like, why do we argue all the time now? I didn't know the statistics that typically during the first year of your marriage, you, you argue a lot. I didn't remember anyone telling me that. I just noticed, I was like, wow, we argue a lot more than we used to. And then I started thinking about some of the stuff that we were arguing about. It kind of all dawned on me during year two when our arguments were settling down and we were kind of finding a rhythm of what it looked like to do life together. And I remember at that point just thinking to myself, let me think through some of our arguments. And almost nothing we argued about actually mattered. 
It was almost all foolish things that I would be embarrassed if anyone knew the subjects of those arguments. Because it's not like we were arguing about world peace or famine in an impoverished, impoverished country. It wasn't like we were trying to solve, you know, how, how do we supply energy to places in, 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 throughout the world that, that lack it? What about places that need to dig wells that don't have an easy source of clean water? You know, we're like, who left a dirty cup on the kitchen table? I think you did it. No, I think you did it. No, that doesn't look like me. Look at the mouth print on the edge of that. That's not my mouth. That's your mouth. It's not my mouth. It's like, shut your mouth. It's, oh, it's on. Okay. That's what we're going to do. For, right? And you look at that, it's like, I'm glad that, you know, and weirdly, you know, I, I was pastoring a church at the time, too. I was pastoring my first church. I thought, boy, I'm glad my church doesn't have, like, my house mic'd up and can hear the stupid things that me and my wife are arguing about. But when you think about this, like, almost every argument you will have in your life is about something that has no eternal consequence. There's a few that matter, right? A few arguments that you'll have in your life that are of real things and things that are consequential. But 99.9% of all the other arguments you will ever have are over things that have no eternal consequence. In life, in marriage, in the church, how often do we argue about things that are just petty and they just cause division? And here's the thing, the devil loves to look at that and say, oh, good, I got you to be selfish at the same time I got you to be selfish, and now meet up and argue about something dumb. And then get real mad. And you know what? Hold on to it a little too long so it turns into bitterness. There we go. And then when the bitterness, you know, bears fruition here, it can, it can just like root itself in your heart and turn into unforgiveness and a judgmental spirit. And you know what? That person causes arguments, so you should probably never talk to them again. That's what you should do. Never talk to them. And if, if you see them coming, like, go the other way. There you go. And I, thought, I think sometimes the devil just loves to play us like a fiddle and, uh, and just, just poise us to, to argue about all sorts of things that are just foolish. And here you look at what the Scripture says. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. It's not like, oh, you know what? I think one of the things we were told we we're supposed to like maintain unity or peace or something like that. It's like, no, eager to do this, where we look at this and we say, all right, this is something that is an ambition that the Lord's called us to. Something that we're called to be eager to do, to notice and, and actually have it matter. We're trying to cultivate this ideal culture in the church, eager to maintain peace, eager to maintain unity. And that's the admonition we're given. But we're told one other thing here that I want to highlight today before we finish. And that's this. When you look at verses 4 through 6, we're encouraged to reflect the heart of God. We're encouraged to, to reflect the plan of God in how we function as a family. So let me reread these verses for us here. Verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 4, it says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith. All right, Paul, you're laying it on kind of thick. One baptism, that's enough. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see what he's trying to do? He's, it's like one, one, one. One, it's like the math of the church. What's it add up to? One. One, right? And what he's trying to do is encourage us to reflect the heart of God and the plan of God in how we function as a family. Now, there are two perspectives toward unity. Some people will look at unity and they say, all right, maintain unity at the expense of truth. 
What do you think about that perspective? Can you maintain unity at the expense of truth? The other facet is this, or the other perspective is this, that you maintain unity that's anchored in truth. So which option was Paul giving to us? He's saying maintain unity that's actually anchored in truth. And he speaks about the great theological truths that our unity is anchored in by repeatedly using that word one, where he says over and over again. So he says, all right, there's one body, not many bodies. So this is his way of saying that in the eyes of God, there is one church, not many splintered churches. There's one church. You either believe in Jesus Christ and you're part of the church, or you don't have faith in Christ and you're not, right? There's one body, one church. He says here there's one Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He lives within all believers and he binds us together. There's one hope. And what's that hope? It's the hope of the gospel, right? Our singular hope is in Jesus Christ, through whom life is found. Paul also tells us here, he says, there's one Lord. Well, who's that one Lord? Well, that one Lord is Jesus Christ. There's one faith of which he is the cornerstone. Then he says, there is one baptism. Do you wonder about that? It's interesting. Like, sometimes when people look at this portion of Scripture, they're like, wait, don't different churches baptize in different ways? Why do they mean that there's one baptism? Some churches baptize by sprinkling. Some churches baptize by immersion. Some churches baptize uh, the children of believers. Some churches baptize uh, when, when you, after you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you're like, all right, so you have churches throughout the world practicing water baptism in different ways, but yet Paul here is saying there's one baptism. Do you know what he's talking about here? You know that water baptism is a symbol of a deeper reality? Do you know that 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually baptized? You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that is true of every believer, regardless of whatever mode of water baptism you've experienced. We have one baptism through the Spirit. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we have been baptized by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. We've been baptized by the Spirit. We have one baptism. Water baptism serves as a visible picture of that inward reality. And then he says, there's one God and Father over, through, and in all believers. We've got one God. We've got one Father. And he's over us all. He's through us all. He's in us all. So we're united to him. We're united to one another. And our God is a God of order. And as his children, what he wants for you and for me is that we reflect both his heart and his plan as we function together as a church family. So the unity that we're blessed with, the unity that's described in this portion of Scripture, it's not a shallow unity that overlooks glaring issues. That's not the kind of unity that's being spoken of here. It's a unity that acknowledges the nature of God, the purpose of the church, and the manner in which the Lord has designed His church to operate. And when a family is united, powerful things get done. And I want to give you an example of that as I finish up today. A few months ago, I, got a, I, was, uh, I usually take Mondays off, and so this was on a Monday. And uh, I was home, and it was, uh, I was sitting at my kitchen table, but I don't remember exactly what I was doing. And, uh, and I got a call from my younger son. And he said, hey, Dad, my car just broke. And, I was, and he's like, I'm stuck on the side of the road. And I said, oh. I said, okay, uh, tell me what it's doing. And for, I, Well, first of all, I said, are you safe? And he said, yeah, I'm safe. I'm in a spot where 
Uh, I'm further, you know, I'm able to get away from traffic, so I'm okay, so I'm safe. Uh, and I said, well, tell me what it's doing, and tell me where you are. And he said, well, it's doing this. And I said, that's your alternator. Okay, so your alternator went. And I said, give me the exact coordinates of where you're at, because I'm going to get a tow truck out to you, and just stay right there, but make sure you're safe. And just, you could go a distance from the car if you want, just make sure that you're safe, keep an eye on the car, and uh, wait for the tow truck. I'm going to get a tow truck to you right away. So I started that process in motion, and while I had that in motion, I was waiting for a call back, I think, I called my other son, and I said, hey, I don't know what you're doing right now, uh, but if you're free, stop and buy an alternator for your brother's car, and if you're free, meet me here at the house, and if, if you can help with this, install it, uh, if you have time. And he said, yeah, I have time. So he stopped and got, got the alternator, brought it back to the house while I'm working with the tow truck. We got my other son back to the house, and so now everybody's back at the house, hood's open, alternator gets swapped out, hood goes down, and uh, my younger son is back on the road. And, uh, and later that evening, he said to me, he said, Dad, this was amazing to me. He said, this to me was the example of the power of a family. And I said, what do you mean? He said, all I really did in that moment, all I did was make a phone call. He's like, my car broke and I made a phone call. And all I had to do was make that phone call, and then a whole world of things got in motion, and within three hours of my car being broken on the side of the road, I was driving my car around town again with a brand new alternator. I wasn't stuck on the side of the road. My car wasn't still broken. It was working. I was mobile. And, and he said, all I had to do was make one phone call, and that's what got that in motion. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, that's a pretty cool example of how a family can operate. So let me say that in regard to the church, in a very real way, I think that's a picture of what the Lord wants to see take place among us as a family, among us as a body. We call on Him. He unites us as a family. We share a common hope. We aim toward a common objective. We take breaks from our own concerns, and we do that to meet one another's needs, and we do so to give Christ glory because it's through Him that we find salvation. And when Paul was trying to encourage the early church, keep in mind, they didn't have their parents' church and their grandparents' church to look back at as an example. They were the first generation of the church in their community. And he's saying, if you want to know how a church is supposed to operate, this is how it goes. This is what it looks like. This is what it's like to care about people that you didn't grow up with, but now all of a sudden they're your family. So treat them like family, because you share one hope with them, one Lord, one salvation, one faith, and you're going to be united with them forever. So you might as well make the best of it even now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the example that you give to us in your word, and that when we look at this sort of thing, that we're able to see the kind of things that were relevant for the church a couple thousand years ago, and they're just as relevant for us right now. And Lord, in every generation, these are things that get tested. In every generation, these are things that, that have moments where it could be very easy for us to kind of drift toward our old nature and become selfish or overly self-focused, and yet we look at a portion of Scripture like this and it says, no, live in unity. 
Work hard to maintain peace. Honor somebody else above yourself. Demonstrate, demonstrate patience. Demonstrate humility. Demonstrate love. Lord, we're just grateful for the, the picture of that, that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down as he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. And we pray, Lord, that living in our context right now, that this would be the type of thing that we would say, so that's how it's done. And Lord, we know that, that many of us have experienced that kind of genuine love and hospitality and unity in, in, uh, in the church, and so we're grateful for that. But Lord, we know that this is the type of thing that very easily could be splintered. And I suspect that right now, during this particular season, that in many local churches, this is the exact thing that has been splintered. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show your favor to our local church, and that by your grace we would remain united, that we would honor you even in seasons where we're tested. Lord, thank you for breaks from testing, and thank you for courage in the midst of testing. And Lord, we know that our brothers and sisters throughout the world right now, some of them are going through tests that are rather severe. We have uh, church leaders that are being incarcerated. We have believers that for a very long time have been penalized if they dare gather together. And Lord, we look at that and we think it's a very challenging time to bear your name and to want to go about things the way your word prescribes. And again, Lord, we know that there are generations that have come before us, including the Apostle Paul's generation, that, that the culture that they were in or the governments that they were under did not make it easy for the church to operate. But I also don't think that the church was sitting around waiting for the government to fix all their problems. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people living in our generation right now who don't sit around and try and place our greatest hope in the government. Lord, if that's something going on in our minds or our hearts, we pray that you'd cleanse us of that thought because it's not of you. Lord, we know that, that you call us to pray for our leaders, you call us to support our leaders as best as we can, but we also know, Lord, that there are going to be times where we're going to have to make a choice. And so when that choice is presented before us, we pray that we would make the choice always that honors you and that we would accept whatever the results are on the other side of that. Lord, again, thank you for the Apostle Paul's example, his, his willingness to be a prisoner for you, a prisoner for your church, for your bride. And Lord, I pray that if our faith gets tested, whether it be in a big way or whether it be in just little ways, and we know that it is, in fact, tested in little ways, we pray that we would walk the walk as you've called us to do so and that that would permeate the mindset and permeate the lives of each and every one of us gathered together as your church. We're just so thankful, Lord, for the privilege to be encouraged by your word today and to be able to start off our week looking at these sorts of things and, and realizing this is a gift from you, Lord, that we have the opportunity, even in, like we will in just a few moments, to be able to lift up our voices together, praising you at the same time, singing the same words together as a, as a show of unity, glorifying your name, worshiping you at the same time. We're just grateful for that, Lord. And we pray that you would, you would just look after us as individuals, that you would look after our church family and our individual families, and that ultimately our lives would glorify you because we know that you are the source of our true and lasting hope. We love you, Lord. We thank you for these reminders from your word today, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.